0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. here with you all this morning uh, as we gather uh, for worship. I uh, see we got some visitors here. If I haven't been able to meet you already, I'm Ant, uh, the pastor here uh, at Midtown I'm Very glad you're here uh, worshiping with us. Hopefully you were able to find in your seats we have a scripture guide uh, there for you that you can just use to do further study in the passage that we will be in uh, today. We'll be starting out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We're steadily making our way through uh, our series, our study on the book of 1 Corinthians. I pray it's been as big of a blessing to you uh, as it's been to me, as as the Lord has really been challenging me uh, through his word. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. If you've been with us, you know Paul has been dealing a lot with the topic of unity and division in the church. We see this extreme love that Paul has, and ultimately that God has for the church. And so we see Paul writing to them to fight against uh, this division in the church, this lack of unity. We've talked a lot about how uh, this this division looks as it pertains to them following different leaders and allowing that to divide them, as they were overly infatuated with the different leaders uh, in the church. Today, Paul is going to turn the corner uh, a little bit, and he's going to continue to talk about unity, but he's not going to talk about it in perspective of or from the uh, in regards to, I should say, the leadership structure that. That they had, and some saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, here he's going straight for their personal relationships with each other. How do they handle conflict? How do they handle it when they are wronged? I feel like one of the saddest things you'll ever see is when members of a family allow conflict to come in, somebody is wronged in some way, and they are no longer able to walk in fellowship and love and unity as they were before. I believe it's one of the saddest things that you'll ever see. There are a lot of things wrong in this world, there are a lot of different types of sin, a lot of different types of injustice. For me personally, uh, a lot of different things will make me angry, will make me upset that, that I see going on in this world. But, but to see family members or, or maybe friends who became like family and then when somebody wronged someone else and they were never able to deal with, a, with the hurt, with the, with the bitterness and continue to walk forward in love, it just makes me sad. It's just like this is a... An extremely sad thing to see. You see it with with parents, with children. You see it with brothers and sisters. You see it with aunts, uncles, cousins, relatives, all across the board. It's just one of the most sad and heartbreaking things I believe that you'll ever see. In my mind and heart, I'm like, are, are we unable to get past this? Whatever wrong has been done? Is your love for each other not greater than whatever it is that's bringing this division? Is your love not strong enough to conquer this bitterness? This unforgiveness, we can't let anger and bitterness win, can we? We, we? we can't actually just let this take over and win and determine how we love one another as brothers and sisters in the church or even biological brothers and sisters that we have. In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, as, as Paul is calling the church to practice forgiveness, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how he describes forgiveness to not forgive is to actually be overcome by evil. It is to allow the the evil or the injustice or the wrongdoing that has impacted you and hurt you to actually prohibit you from being able to continue to walk in love with someone else. He's saying when that happens, evil has overcome good. And in his call to forgiveness, he's saying do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That when you are sinned, continue to walk in love towards the one who sinned against you is how Paul is telling the church to relate to one another. Don't, don't, don't let evil win. Don't let the darkness win. If you continue in such bitterness and unforgiveness that you're no, no longer able to truly walk in love with this person, Paul, Paul is saying that evil has won. Evil has come into the church in the relationships of the church when we're knit together by the Holy Spirit in the fellowship of Christ. And when he says when, when, the, when that love is broken, he's saying evil has conquered. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As a church, will we let the hurt, the bitterness, the unforgiveness choke out the love, the good that God has put in our hearts? If you're a Christian, you are allowing the good love of God. Are you allowing the good love of God in you to defeat the evil, the sin, the wrong that was done? The Corinthian church is dealing with this very specifically at this time. Paul goes into one specific way that that plays out for them. I don't think uh, the, the way it plays out for them, I don't think, is exactly the way it often plays out for us. But it definitely plays out for us in a variety of ways. First Corinthians chapter six. I'll get it started at verse one. This is Paul correcting them, pushing them towards unity in a loving way. Verse one: When you, sorry, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints. So that word grievance just simply means a matter of business or something like that. One of you has, you have something against the others, what Paul is saying. One Christian in the church has something against the other and they're going before, and as we see a little bit later, they're actually suing each other and going to the law when, when they have these grievances against each other. Something unfair, something selfish has happened, and they're going before judges who, who many would say that many of the judges at that time were, were unrighteous and were wicked uh, and weren't fair at all in their judgment. So they're going to these um, unrighteous judges to settle these disputes. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? I'll come back to that word in a second. Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? In some way, there's not 100% explained in detail in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, uh, the saints, the people of God, join him in his ruling and reigning over all of creation and even in his judgment, so to speak, over the world. There's a lot of confusion by a lot of different scholars on what exactly Paul is talking about. I would say the Bible doesn't go into detail, but there is, there is definitely evidence to see in the Bible that, that we are going to reign with him over the world, even over angels. And what Paul is saying is, are, are you, you realize the people who are in your church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to reign over the earth and over creation. He says, is there not someone among you who is competent enough to try these trivial cases? Trivial is a word that means of little value or importance. It's the same Greek word that Jesus uses when he refers to some of his brothers as the least of these. That word least is the same word there that's also translated as trivial He called out the petty saints. The saints who who, who allow division to come in when it's really something that's just trivial. It's, It's the least of things is what Paul is saying. These are things that don't even matter, and they're going to court over it. Are you going to let these small, insignificant matters cause you to go through all the drama of this process? You know all of the division that it's going to cause. Isn't there someone who can settle these trivial matters among you? Continue in verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. He said, you should be ashamed of the fact that you can't handle these trivial, these small, minor cases just where you are. Continue in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all. With one another is already a defeat for you. He's saying, You mean to tell me that you are suing your brother over something trivial, over something that's not even important in the first place? He's saying, Is there no one there who can settle that for you all? Now, here's something that we need to do uh, because people take this passage out of context way too far and it's extremely harmful when this is done. There are many people, there are many churches, church leaders, Christian leaders that have gone to a passage like this and tried to use it to hide and cover up crime that has been committed in the form of abuse within the church. Right, because they point to this passage and say, hey, Paul says you're supposed to handle everything in the house, so this is, this is we're just going to handle this right here, and we're not going to actually let the officials know. But uh, one of the first rules of studying and interpreting the Bible is you let the Bible interpret itself for you. You compare Scripture with Scripture. So we can't remove this passage from what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, when he says that God actually works through the governing authorities to bring justice on the earth. So he is not saying you are hiding criminal activity as has been done in the church, and I... I hate that I even have to say this. This is one of the most mind-blowing things that obviously has been coming to light more and more with the church is that this verse, this passage, I should say, has been twisted by, those, by people who are in authority in the church to use it to get away with their sin and their crimes and, and their abuse and not actually have to suffer through the penalty and the punishment that they should have to suffer through, and that is wrong. That is 100% not what Paul is saying. How do we know that? Because he's talking about trivial stuff. He's using a word that literally means the least of things. He's saying you are suing each other over something that's not even important. This is not talking about abuse. This is not talking about crime. If there is a crime that is committed within the church, especially when it's by someone in authority in the church, we report it. We let it be known. I remember one time, one of our midtown churches. Uh, there was a family who had a domestic violence uh, incident, and they called a pastor. Um, and I think more than one pastor showed up and was like, we got to call the police. Like, we love y'all, but we, we, we call it. I mean, what, what, what happens after that is up to the authorities. That is not something that, that we are in the, in the right position to be able to handle as pastors so we get the authorities involved. So I want to make sure we're very clear on understanding. He's not saying cover up crime and criminal activity because we're supposed to handle everything in the church. If there's a crime, call the law enforcement, right? If you just got an issue, you got a beef, somebody says something the wrong way, maybe call your life leader or something like that. But if it's a crime, you call, you call the law. If it's a, an argument, a disagreement, a, a, a sin issue, I would say call the church. We have to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand that Scripture does not contradict itself. But there are some issues, as Paul is saying, that are to be handled within the church, Paul says. Issues of, of sin, issues of division, issues of unforgiveness, as we'll see a little bit later. So, for example, if somebody lets me borrow a toolbox, right, and they get the toolbox back and some of the tools aren't in the same type of condition as they were in previously, Right? That's that's something that that I and whoever let me borrow the toolbox should be able to handle and should be able to deal with. We should be able to work that out. And Paul says if if not, if you're not doing that, he says you're already defeated. If you can't handle a trivial issue just with you and your brother and you got to sue each other, you won't judge Judy? I'm going to be watching. So Paul actually says there should be someone there who is wise enough, who is fair enough, who is unbiased, that you can both go to and say, hey, help us work through this, and then we're just going to settle it the way that it is after that, and we'll just move forward with whatever that is. This is what Paul says. On trivial issues, again, and even just reading that, that's also kind of a scary thing, because Paul is saying you're going to go to somebody, and they're going to mediate for you, and then you guys are going to move forward, and he also says... Shouldn't you also just be defrauded, or allow yourself to just be defrauded? Look at verse seven. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. I swear it gets difficult. I swear it gets real difficult. Cause Paul is saying it would be better that you was just defrauded and wrong than you go and sue your brother. And every self-pre- self-preserving, every bit of desire for comfort that we have when we read that, we're like, I don't know about that, Paul. I don't know about that one, bro. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that one, right? Paul is elevating this desire for unity in the church above his desire to be treated fairly. Paul is elevating his desire for unity and love in the church above his desire to be treated fairly. Above his desire for his own comfort. He isn't saying that he doesn't care about people being defrauded and treated unfairly. He's saying that he just values union in the church more than that. More than everyone getting 100% fair treatment on every trivial case or every trivial issue, he says. We've been seeing this for the last few weeks. Paul is, is so strong coming after unity for them. He's calling them to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the unity of the church, that it's better to suffer wrong than to take your brother and sister to court for a trivial matter. It's better to be defrauded yourself than for you to defraud your brother. It's better to be wrong than for you to wrong your brother, Paul says. He's saying sometimes you just got to take the loss. So without actually using the term, the concept that Paul is dealing with is the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness. He's basically saying, why don't you forgive the person who, who wronged you? And he's saying, just, why, why not just be defrauded? He's saying, why don't you just forgive them and continue on and walk in love together? He said, that would be better than going through all the drama of going to court over this thing. To forgive someone, if I was to try to define it, is to stop seeking to make someone pay for what they've done. To forgive someone is to stop seeking to make someone pay for what they've done. doesn't mean you don't still have anger. doesn't mean you don't still have hurt. All right, I want to make that very clear. It is Because you can still have a level of hurt and even a level of anger in your heart and still choose to forgive someone. See, forgiveness is not simply about what you feel, even though feelings are very involved. Forgiveness is your choice to say, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore, and I'm not going to try to make you pay for what you've done in any way. And I'm not just saying in an aggressive way. So you can try to make somebody pay in a real aggressive way where you try to do something to harm them, or you can try to make somebody pay in a real passive way and just give them a cold shoulder whenever they try to talk to you. None of y'all in here, just people outside. That do that. Nobody in this room, obviously. There's multiple ways to try to make someone pay. Paul is pushing them towards forgiveness. Biblically speaking, the term forgiveness is actually most literally a financial term. You may have heard of the term debt forgiveness before. Uh, you can stop seeking to make someone pay off a of debt. Some of y'all, we, we know Sally may need some just Holy Spirit inspired debt forgiveness plans. Any student loan saints in the house today? (laughs) Amen. Amen. I appreciate that. That term debt forgiveness, it's, it's the same concept. It's that I'm not going to continue to seek to make you pay even though I could and maybe even though I should. That's what forgiveness actually is. Forgiveness is when the demands of justice say I have the right to make you pay, but I'm not going to do it. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness is. So that's why when someone sins against someone and does them wrong, it is often referred to as a debt in the Bible. You may hear people refer to revenge as making someone pay for something. I'm going to make you suffer loss because of the loss that you have made me suffer. You ever notice what Jesus says in the, Lord prayer, in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our what? Debtors. He's talking about it in financial terms. Forgiveness in general is a financial term. He's like, I'm not going to make you pay. And so in the Bible, sin is often referred to as a debt, often referred to as a debt. So what Paul is talking about here, even though he's talking about them them forgiveness and there's likely some type of financial implications of some of the lawsuits that they are having at this time, he's using this example to really point to something deeper, that is forgiveness. Again, it's when the demands of justice say, I have the right to make you pay, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you pay for the wrong that you have done. That's what the Corinthians are going through right now, right? They got the right to take this person to court. They got the right to demand back what, what maybe was, what, what is owed to them or what they should have. They have every right from a judicial standpoint and a legal standpoint to do that. And Paul is saying, wouldn't it be better if you was just wrong and you just forgave them? Wouldn't that be better for everyone? Shouldn't you just ab- absorb the cost rather than taking your brother or sister to court? You should care more about the unity of the church, the unity between you and your brothers and sisters, than you care about getting what you're owed in trivial matters, Paul is saying. So which do you care more about, making people pay for trivial wrong things they've committed against you or the unity of the church? Which do you care more about? Paul specifically addresses them harming the unity by taking each other to court over trivial matters. But I think for us, it looks a little bit different. See, for them at that point, there was only one church in Corinth, right? The the one that Paul was writing to, there was only one church. There's not different denominations. There's not different local churches that they can go to. So when they have beef, they can't do what we do. When we have beef, we get up and leave and go to another church. They didn't have the ability to do that. There was only one church. If you was a part of a church, you was going to be around this same group of people. So for them to settle it, or, or if they didn't want to actually go through the process of, of confrontation and talking through things for the sake of forgiveness, then they're just going to go sue you and just get what they can get. For us, if we don't even want to go through all that drama, we just be like, you know what, I'm just, I don't feel called here anymore. <laughs> I don't feel called to be here anymore. I want to be honest, church hurt is a very real thing. It's very significant, it's damaging in many ways, there are many wounds that people in this room carry around from church, church I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm talking about trivial stuff. I'm talking about the petty stuff. That's what Paul is dealing with. I'm talking about the person that texts you back three years ago, and you're still mad about it, because they didn't text you when you thought they should. Or maybe I'm talking about the person who confronted you and challenged you on something, and they didn't quite say it the way that they should have, but what they were saying was true, and you felt wrong about it, and you ain't said nothing to them about it, and you still hurt, you still looking at them sideways. I'm talking about petty stuff. I'm talking about stuff that we should be able to work through as the church. This is what Paul is dealing with. I'm talking about you still looking at another brother different because they wronged you some time ago, and they don't even know that they wronged you because you never brought it up to them. Because you won't confront them as God would have you to because you're afraid of dealing with the conflict and dealing with the confrontation. I'm talking about the person in your life group that you're bitter with because they always take up the life group time, but you ain't not said anything to them about it. I'm talking about trivial stuff. I'm talking about petty stuff. I know there's likely people that are members of our church right now. I'm super glad you're part of our church. i got to be honest with you. You're pro- there are probably people who are here that are members of our church right now that the reason you're here is because you didn't deal with bitterness from a previous church, and that is the reason you're here. You, move, you, you You were hurt. You never actually pursued forgiveness. You grew sour towards that person and towards the congregation, and that's the reason that you left. I love that you're here. I'm very happy about it. You need to go talk to that person, whoever it is. You need to go have a conversation with that person. That is your brother. That is your sister in Christ. I believe... I call this the slow process of division. I want to try to explain it the best way I know how. Right now, you're frustrated about something someone in our church did to you. Maybe they wronged you. Maybe you perceive that they wronged you, but you're not 100% sure. Um, and right now, it's a frustration that you have. But you don't like conflict, so you're not dealing with it. You don't approach them about it. You don't really let them know what's going on. But you notice this, this friction, something's different between you all. And a year from now, you start feeling like, I don't know, this church doesn't really feel like home for me like it used to. It doesn't really feel like family the way that it used to. I don't really get that good feeling. I feel more anxious when I'm around the body of Christ now. It's just not the same. In two years from, in two years from now, you're already visiting another church. And you are able to justify in your mind that it's because the church isn't, isn't what it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to feel anxious when I'm around my brothers and sisters, right? I'm supposed to be able to feel good when I gather with the saints. And you'll justify because of how you're feeling And make yourself think you didn't do anything wrong when it was all because of the bitterness that you never dealt with. Because of the fact that you were hurt and you never actually perceived or pursued forgiveness with the person who sinned against you. It's a slow process of division in the church that I see happening over and over and over again. Not as much here, if I'm being honest, but I've seen it many, many times in the church. Are you willing to pay the cost to fight for forgiveness now? For the sake of unity in the church, I'll be honest with you. There's a very frequently in our culture today, uh, I feel like there's a pattern, maybe even an epidemic of people who every two or so years just move to a different church, right? And God might be calling you to move to a different church. I'm not saying he's not calling you to do that. Uh, If God calls you to do that, that's 100% what you should do. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it's because of conflict that goes undealt with. And you actually never learn how to deal with conflict. So you go to another church thinking, oh, this one's great. It's not going to happen here. The same thing happens. And and now every church you go to, and you're losing trust for the church when it's really just that you can't forgive people. You don't know how to forgive people. And so now you bash the church. You bash leadership that is in the church. And churches are struggling to move forward and reach the type of communities and neighborhoods because it is is difficult to appoint and grow and develop leaders when that happens. I need you all to hear me on this. This type of division, this type of flightiness, this type of flakiness that is rooted in I'm not going to pursue unity, I'm not going to pursue love and forgiveness with my brother and sister is harming the church and is preventing churches from doing all the things that we all want to see churches doing over and over. In my experience, uh, when some, from the first time someone walks into the doors of a church, let's say someone has a significant leadership ability and experience and potential and all that. From the first time someone walks through the doors of a church, until that person is, is able to lead in the area that perfectly fits uh, their, their gifting, their wiring, usually takes about two years. From the first time someone comes in contact with the church until they're able to be in that position of leadership and move that, that department of the church forward in their giftings, that, that's kind of that, that they're fitness, the perfect piece or the missing piece of the puzzle, it usually takes about two years. I'll tell you what happens. You may have done this before. You come to a church, you start liking it, but you're like, I don't know, I need to visit a few more times. You do that, and you're like, okay, I think I'm going to become a member. You become a member, that's probably about six months out. And then you're like, this is so great. And you're in that honeymoon phase. Everything that, everything that this other church, that, you're, that the church you left was not, this church is. It's great. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be wonderful. You're in the honeymoon phase. About nine months, you come to this point of the, the, the second decision. You already decided to join. Then it's like, am I going to stick this out? Am I going to stick this out? Because this person over here, oh, my last nerve. Oh, my last nerve. And then after that? If you do continue to plug in your, 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 your gifts, your strengths, and, the, and how God is wiring it begins to show itself. Leaders in the church begin to be able to see that. And then the process of you being in that leadership position that's just like, this is where you need to be. It usually takes about two years. But if we don't know how to forgive, because in that two years, you're going to be sinned against a lot. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to, to grow cold in your heart, to have bitterness fester. I'm not saying this so that because I'm trying to get Midtown Two Nights to grow and keep y'all from leaving for that. I'm talking about kingdom work right now. I'm talking about the mission of God going forward. I'm talking about the kingdom of God living and breathing and moving the way that God has called it to. If we cannot forgive, we're short-circuiting the whole process. We must, we must learn to forgive. It doesn't look like us suing each other because we can just leave but this leaving, this, this, this running away is harming the church so much. We can't send out missionaries to places that need the gospel the way we want to because we can't forgive. We can't plan ways of reaching out to our communities and neighborhoods and meeting the needs that are there because we can't forgive. This forgiveness, it is, it is so important. Jesus asked, I mean, Peter asked Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said seven times 70, right? So seven is a number that means completion. He said, no, I'm taking it way higher than you even think that it would be. And then after that, he told this parable. It's in Matthew chapter 18. I'll start at verse 23. This is Jesus instructing, encouraging, motivating his followers to forgive. Matthew 18, again, starting at verse 23. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent at that time, if you're talking about how much money that, that was owed. One talent at that time is about 20 years wages for somebody who's in working class. That's one talent. About 20 years wages for a working class person. This guy owed, how many was it? 10,000 talents. So that's 200,000 years of wages for someone with a working-class job. One, one study Bible that I saw estimated it was close to $6 billion is what this person owed. Let's keep reading, see what happens. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had and payment had to be made. So unfortunately, this was a common practice in the ancient world. If you owe someone a debt, it is not just your debt, it is your debt and all of your family, your children, and everyone like that because they are so associated and connected with you. So that's what's going on there. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Six billion dollars. If you're watching this and you're in Jesus' time, you're like, what? Like, this is shocking. This man owes you about six billion dollars, and you're like, you know what? Forget about it. We cool. Just like, just like, dap it up. Fifth pound, we good. Out of pity for him, out of mercy for him, out of compassion that he has in his heart for this person. He released him and just forgave him the debt. The man comes in and says, hey, I'll pay you back. He was like, don't even worry about it. We're good. Don't even even worry about it. I'll I'll show compassion to you. Continue in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about four months' wages. That's estimated about $12,000. About $12,000. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the guy who just got forgiven for about $6 billion worth of debt, had another man, another servant, who owed him $12,000 of debt and strangled him with his hands and said, no, you will pay me, send him to jail until he could pay off his debt or send him to prison or wherever it was. Does this just not look ridiculous? It's like you, you were in the same position as this guy. You were in the same, you in the same position, you were in the same condition. The, the demands of justice were, hey, you have to pay this. This is what you have to do, and you were forgiven. You, you, you were let go. Your, your master did not seek that from you. Your master did not make you pay. But yet when someone owes you so much less, has such a smaller debt, you are unable to forgive them. Come verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus' point is simple and profound. All who are followers of Jesus have been forgiven of an unimaginable number of sins. An unimaginable weight of sin, an unimaginable debt of sin, if you would. We have sinned against our pure, righteous, sinless God who has always loved us, who has always been for our good every single moment of our lives. He has extended extended his grace and his mercy to us every moment of our lives. He extends his love to us and we reject him over and over again. He guides us as a loving and wise father does and and we choose to follow our own desires instead of him. He says if we want to follow him we need to surrender our lives to him and we choose our own comforts and our own preferences over his commands. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. And we have hearts full of lust and pride and greed and strife and jealousy. He calls he calls us to build each other up. We use our words to tear each other down. We use our words to insult and to gossip. He calls us to worship and love him more than anything else with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we often choose his creation over him. We choose his hand over his heart. We want his stuff more than we want him. And the good news for everyone who has ever trusted in Christ, the good news for all the saints, for all the believers who have been declared righteous in him is that even though we have sinned against him more times than we are able to count, he adopts us into his family and makes us his sons and daughters. He washes us clean from the guilt of our sin. He clothes us in his perfect righteousness. He makes us new creations in him. He gives us new life and he pursues us every day of our lives, even when we're running away from him. We are like the one who was forgiven for the six billion dollar debt. How could we not forgive? Our brothers and sisters who have sinned against us far less than we have sinned against our God. Who have sinned against us far fewer times than we have sinned against him. And when we do not forgive our brothers and sisters, especially over petty and trivial matters that you could have squashed years ago. We look every bit as ridiculous as the man who who has been forgiven for $6 billion but can't forgive for $12,000. We are every bit as ridiculous. So if you're having trouble fighting unforgiveness in your heart, this is a challenge, this is a difficulty. If you find yourself apathetic when it comes to forgiveness, if you find yourself, you just shrug your shoulders and you're like, I don't want to deal with the drama. I don't have time for this in my life. I don't have time for negative people. I don't have time for draining people. I don't have time for people who do not add to my life. And thus you have justified in your own mind your unforgiveness and your bitterness and your choice to remain in division. If that's you, Especially over something trivial. I just got to ask you, do you, see, do you see your unforgiveness as ridiculous as the man in this story? Do you see your unforgiveness as just, I'm just being ridiculous right now. Like This doesn't even make any sense what I'm doing. This is not a rational response to what is actually going on in my life right now. Do you see it that way? If not, you have no grasp on the depths of your sin. And, you, and thus, you have no grasp on the grace that God has actually extended to you. You have no understanding of the mercy of God that he has shown to you. You have no understanding of the forgiveness that has been offered to you if you're un, unable to walk in forgiveness with your brother and sister. If you don't see that this is absolutely ridiculous, our unforgiveness that we have with each other, you have been blinded. You have been blinded by the enemy, and you believe the lie that someone else's sin is worse than yours. You have been blinded. You are unable to see. You're, you're being controlled and led and mastered, maybe by the fear of the confrontation, right? maybe of the fear of the, of, to admit exactly how much you have sinned against God. Christians forgive. Christians forgive. I, I truly don't believe you can actually be at a place of appropriately worshiping God for his grace and forgiveness of you and not forgive your brother or sister. I don't believe you can actually have a heart full of worshipful gratitude to God for everything that you've been forgiven for and still hold a grudge and say, I'm still going to make this person pay for what they have done to me. I don't think it's possible. That's what this whole story is about that Jesus gives us. that it's just not possible. That it's just ridiculous that if you saw it appropriately, you'd be like, "What, what is going on? I can't even wrap my mind around this foolishness. The truth of the matter is a Christian who understands the grace and forgiveness of God extends that same grace and forgiveness to those that sin against him or her. And I believe that's why Jesus ends this parable the way that he does. Look at verse 34. Read 34 and 35. And in anger, his master... This is talking about the king that was there in the beginning. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. This is the one who he first forgave and then did not forgive someone else that owed them an estimated $12,000. And in his Sorry, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And hear what Jesus says here, and I want you to feel the weight of it, because when Jesus talks about forgiveness for the Christian, he does not pull his punches. He speaks in a very authoritatively and seemingly harsh way. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Read 34 and 35 again. And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35: So also, my heavenly father, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, he he operates with this understanding that if you are actually a Christian, if you're actually saved, if you've actually placed faith in him, you will walk in forgiveness. That's his understanding, that's where he starts. That if you actually have experienced his grace, that if you actually have experienced his forgiveness, that it will flow out of you to those who sin against you. The Christian perspective on on forgiveness, when someone sins against you, it actually gives you a better opportunity to display God's love to them. Christ's love to us is a forgiving love. It's a steadfast love that endures even when we are wronged. And thus, when someone sins against us, it actually gives us the opportunity to display Christ's love to them in the way that we did not previously have if they did not sin against us. It opens the door for us to model for them the the forgiving love of Christ. He's saying that those who have truly received forgiveness also offer it to others. He's saying that to be a Christian is to forgive. A Christian is one who has been humbled and heartbroken over our sin and have gone to God with a heart that says, God, I've sinned against you so many times. I've broken your commands. I've broken your heart. I've deserved to be condemned by you for my sins. This is what justice would demand. But, Father, please forgive me. See, the Christian is one who's been in that place, right? The place of both of the servants in the store who's like, just, just please have mercy on me. I know I owe you this. I know you have a right to please just, just have mercy on me. The Christian is the one who identifies with those who are in that place. Who in that place. So, yes, I'm wrong. Yes, I need forgiveness. No, no, I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I still need it if we're going to walk in love. The Christian has been there and understands it. And the more we grow and mature as believers and followers of Jesus, the more that forgiveness flows through us. We are those that believe that the sin we've committed is great, but the forgiveness we've received is even greater. We're those that believe that we deserve to be condemned before God because of our sin, but Jesus was condemned in our place on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we don't actually have to pay the penalty and the price for our sins. We're those that believe that the the, the demands of justice said that we deserve to pay for our wrongdoing, but Jesus paid the price on our behalf when he was condemned on the cross for our sin. We are people that forgive because we've been forgiven. So as Romans 12, I read at the beginning, Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The church that cannot forgive is the church that is overcome by evil. But the church that keeps his eyes on the cross, the church that remembers Christ and what he went through and what he endured as he was condemned in our place so that we can be forgiven, is the church that forgives. Is the church that offers what we have received. The one who can't forgive has been hurt, has been harmed by sin, by darkness, has evil. It's like the darkness has has come and made contact with us. And there's one of two options when that happens, right? You can either overcome it. You can either, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, you can either either overcome it and say, I'm not going to let this determine how much I love someone. Or you are overcome and defeated by the darkness that you have experienced. And often you actually become the very thing that you hate. You actually become the very thing that has harmed you as you now exude harm and sin and evil and hurt to those that sinned against you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. What's he saying? He's saying you've been defeated. The fact that y'all can't work through this and forgive each other shows you've been defeated. He's saying that evil has overcome good in your heart. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together as a family. We're going to take the bread that represents the body of Jesus. We're going to take the juice that represents the blood that Jesus shed. We're going to take the emblems that represent to us our victory over evil. We're going to take the emblems that represent to us our actual ability to forgive. When we take communion today, you remember, this is why we forgive. This is why we are able to forgive. This is our example of what forgiveness looks like. And whenever I don't want to forgive somebody, I, t- I go back to the table. I go back to the communion table and I see the broken body and I see the shed blood and I see my forgiveness. So as we approach the table today, if there's anyone in here, and I know this is something that we struggle with from time to time, they're just struggling to forgive. And maybe you were walking in forgiveness at one point, but now you're just like, I've I've completely given up on trying to forgive this person. I want to encourage you to approach the table, approach the communion table with a heart that says, Lord, give me the strength to do it again. Give me the strength to forgive again. I'm hurt, and I'm sad, and I'm wounded, and I'm feeling the pain. of. Give me the ability to forgive again. Teach me how to love and how to forgive and extend mercy and grace as you have extended to me. Let's fight for this, church. Through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit that lives in us, with our eyes on Jesus Christ himself, let us fight for forgiveness. I want to pray for us, and we'll open up the, the communion table. And we'll approach the table together as a family. Father, we're going to need your help with this one. Father, when we are sinned against, even in things that are trivial, Father, it's painful for us. It's difficult, Father. The hurt seems to overwhelm everything that we see, everything that we feel, Father. It's difficult to to just let it go. But, Father, will you help us to see every day, every day of our lives... That you extend mercy to us, you extend grace to us, you extend forgiveness to us. Would you help us to see that no one has sinned against us more than we have sinned against you? That you are perfect and that you are holy and that you have never done anything wrong to any of us, yet we, we, we rebel against you. Even after becoming believers, we, we turn away from you, we run away from you, but you keep coming after us, you keep pursuing us with your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And if we just believe in you, if we just submit our lives to you, you offer us a forgiveness like we've never known and like we've never seen. Father, make us a church that is quick to forgive, that we fight for forgiveness. Make us a church that overcomes evil with good. Make us a church that is not like the servant who has been forgiven for much but won't forgive others for little. Would you make forgiveness a part of, our, of, of the atmosphere of our church? that we are quick to forgive, we're quick to squash whatever comes up, whether it be something big or just something petty and small. Give us this strength, Lord. We need it. It's in Christ's name I pray.